Welcome to an extra dose of Making Sense. Normally we do a, a live reading where I surprise Jeff with a article that's in the mainstream financial press, but because we just did an interview of, with Carolyn Sissoko, we thought, why don't we just do a kind of a regular topical episode and just append it to our weekly content with Carolyn. Now, don't worry, it's gonna be a little bit different than usual because we're gonna be talking about Buffett and whether or not he's beautiful. We're not gonna be talking about Warren Buffett just yet. Instead, we're gonna go back in time. We're gonna be talking about Congressman Howard Holman Buffett representing the second district between 1943 through 53, off and on, mostly on. And Jeff, it turns out that our Warren Buffett that we know had a well-known father. And uh, tell us a little about him. And it's very interesting. He was right there during that moment when intense government spending was taking place, just like right now. Yeah, Howard, Howard Buffett was a congressman from Nebraska, as you said, and as Warren's father. He actually was a very outspoken Republican in the opposition to FDR and the New Deal. So he was even before he, he arrived at Congress, he had been pretty well known for his his what his views what would be classified today as as being of that of a gold buck. He was he was very much against the uh, especially the during the New Deal, New Deal deficits and how they were going to ruin the country, bankrupt the bankrupt the U.S., destroy the currency, all the stuff that you hear about nowadays. Uh, you know, Howard Buffett was a, a very, very well-known purveyor of the same, same kinds of ideas. And you know, again, historically speaking, the guy had a point, just as people today have a point, that there is, there are limitations, and that governments who are profligate end up, you typically end up with only the the worst kinds of results, whether monetary, financial, or whatever else, uh, currency destruction, all those kinds of things. So he was on very sound historical basis, except as we know moving into the 40s and 50s, none of those things ever happened. So really the question that should have been asked back then, but really wasn't because everybody was happy to get into the 50s and prosperity and peace and all that stuff. But nobody you know, really didn't go back and say, wait a minute, we kept hearing about how this government deficits were going to destroy the country, destroy the world, destroy everything, and it kind of didn't happen. Again, you know, part of that was that, hey, the 1930s were pretty much thoroughly destroyed anyway so maybe it was kind of hard to separate cause from effect in that in that sense so it was it was a difficult process but i don't think there's there was a lot of time or enough time spent on really reviewing what happened back then and what did go wrong and what didn't go wrong dear audience forgive me i never introduced jeff jeff snyder the head of global research for alhambra investments which is where you can find this blog post is Warren Buffett beautiful? Of course he is. It was posted on the 3rd of May. And Jeffy, there's, here's a great quote from Congressman Howard. Before 1933, the people themselves had an effective way to demand economy. Before 1933, whenever the people became disturbed over federal spending, they could go to the banks, redeem their paper currency and gold, and wait for common sense to return to Washington. Well, <laughs> that last part, common sense yeah. in Washington. But it may, it's a great point. It's a great point. I wish I could turn my paper money in and turn it into gold. I think that would be amazing. But it was a, 
It was a bygone era. It's over. Jeff. Yeah, but Emil, that's the elegance and the beauty of the gold standard. And that's why the gold standard holds so much sway even today, because that's what it represented. It represented the power resting in the hands of the people. People had money and they had the ability, the right to go to their bank and convert their you know, worthless paper or paper that was valued only on faith into hard money, which was gold bullion. And if they thought, well, hey, government's not getting their act in order, they're going to destroy the currency, I can vote with my gold. I don't need to vote with my feet. I can take the gold, as Congressman Buffett was saying, I take the gold out of the banking system. The banking system no longer has the money to buy the government bonds. And therefore, they act as the bond vigilantes of current mythology, which is just one step removed. And what he's saying is very beautiful, elegant, and powerful. And in many ways, that's kind of the system we need to strive for, a decentralized monetary system that isn't so bank-centered and dependent upon the banking system. And the way you do that is to have a de decentralized, uh, very widely distributed monetary base. And if it's available to the regular folks, then regular folks can impose their collective will upon even the most powerful of governments. This is something that we talked about with Nick Black on his Crypto and Coffee podcast about two weeks ago. I'll put it in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to hear Jeff and Nick talk about cryptocurrencies and decentralized finance and what it may hold for the future. Jeff, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Tell us about the New York Times editorial that Warren Buffett wrote in August of 2009, an important point in America's economic history. It was called the Greenback Effect. Yeah, he sounded a lot like his father, except for one thing. One, one key difference was Warren Buffett said, I understand why the government was going crazy in 2008 and 2009. They were rescuing the financial system. So maybe he, dis he disagreed with his father there. And, you know, by the way, that's the other side of the gold standard argument is that people tend to maybe overdo it, become emotional, and they withdraw too much money from the banking system. So they're not checking the government's ability to spend. They're actually creating monetary deflation, which is the worst of the worst cases. So that's the New Deal argument, which we'll get into in, at some other point. But what Warren was saying is, look, we had a monetary event. We had a big we had a big contraction. The government stepped in. Those things were good. But where we're running into danger in his mind is they kept doing it. I think it was in August of 2009 when this, when this editorial was written. That's right. What he's saying is if they keep doing it, then they risk doing too much. There's too much government borrowing. There's too much money printing by the Fed. Thus, inflation, currency destruction, all of the uh, common uh, common associated problems with that kind of uh, over overdoing it. There's a line in there in his editorial that you bring to our attention. Now, I think this is going to be the perhaps the takeaway of this article is that just because you're good at one thing, stocks, doesn't mean you're good at something else. And the line that he said that you have a problem with is the dollar's destiny lies with Congress. That's Howard and Warren all, all rolled into one, right? I mean, that's what both of them are trying to say is that, look, the dollar, the currency is the sole providence of the government, Congress, and Congress has the ability to either make it a, faith, a faithful currency or, or a faithless currency, which will be destroyed and go to zero. And, I, you know, as you're, to your point, why are we listening to Warren Buffett on issues of dollars and money and all those kinds of things? And the answer is because 
He's a famous guy and he's a famous guy. What is he famous for? He's probably the most famous investor in all of history. And that's a well-earned, he's absolutely earned his place there in the Hall of Fame. The guy knows stocks. The guy knows how to invest. The question though is, is we hear, you know, sometimes it's called the Nobel Prize effect. Just because you win a Nobel Prize in some, in some science doesn't mean you're an expert at everything. And it seems like in Warren Buffett's case, it would be a natural connection because we all, we're all taught to believe that stocks are finance and stocks are in some ways affected by the monetary system. And we know inflation is money. Therefore, it seems like, well, Warren Buffett knows stocks. Therefore, he knows money. Therefore, he knows inflation. Except that's just not the case. It's not true. He definitely knows stocks. He knows how to buy companies and invest in those things. But anybody who would say that the dollar's destiny lies with Congress obviously doesn't know money, at least not in the modern sense. And I would argue that through Buffett's statement in 2009, as well as others he, 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 uh, he had made around the same time over the next couple of years, he is, his view of the monetary system is no different than Howard's, his father. In fact, you know, his view of things is quite clearly the same as, as it had been in the 1940s and 1930s, which is it, not only is it inappropriate, it kind of explains why he kept saying dollars going to be destroyed, inflation's coming when none of those things ended up happening. Let me read one of those quotes that you just alluded to. This one is from March of 2011, an important moment in Eurodollar history. We're just approaching the, the beginning of Eurodollar number two. I guess we did have a little bit of a, well, I'm getting off track. It was on the cusp of bad news. Here's a quote. Uh, let's see, where was he? He was, I don't think he was anywhere in particular. He just, oh, he was in India. He was in New Delhi in March of 2011. Yeah. And he said, if you ask me if the US dollar is going to hold its purchasing power fully at the level of 2011, five, 10, or 20 years from now, I would tell you it will not. And he was right. Our <laughs> purchasing power has only gone way up since then. <laughs> oh, wow. That's not what he meant, though, did no, he, Jeff? No, no but, but see, that was the com. I mean, as we've pointed out many, many, many times, is that, that at that time, that was the, I mean, currency war. That was the that was the term that was thrown around all throughout that period, especially in the wake of Ben Bernanke's second quantitative easing. That's right. Uh, just a couple months before what Warren Buffett was saying. Again, it reinforced his idea that the Fed is printing money and therefore printing way too much money. And that was going to risk not just inflation, but currency destruction. And so his views of the dollar and the economic situation as it pertained to inflation in the United States was absolutely no different than the, the stuff that was spewed in all these mainstream outlets all over the place. You know, the, the E21 group that urged Bernanke to stop his QE, knock it off before you destroy the dollar and all those things. And the point was, as you pointed out, March 2011 was pretty much next to the very lowest point in the dollar over the last decade since then. And it has been. It's been 10 years since then. And nobody talks about currency wars anymore. Nobody talked, I mean, not, not even much past 2011 because it became quite clear, especially as inflation rates in the U.S. fell into 2012 and beyond, and Ben Bernanke was forced into a third and fourth quantitative easing, that, that still the primary risks to the economic situation were not inflationary. They were not dollar destruction. They were not too many treasuries. It was, in fact, a, it was in fact that the market wanted all the treasuries that the, the U.S. Congress would, was, was going to authorize the Treasury Department to borrow and, and, and uh, sell off to the public. 
deflation, disinflation, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the lack of monetary growth that was restraining economic growth. And thus, that's why there was never a dollar destruction, only the dollar rising. That's why there was no consumer price inflation, like low consumer price inflation. It's not that there was none, but there was much less than what the Federal Reserve had explicit had become to had come to explicitly target at that time. A few weeks before he was in India, he said, we are following policies that will lead to lots of inflation down the road if things don't change. That's March 3rd, 2011. Just a little bit under a year later, in his annual shareholder letter, Buffett again warns, these are among the most dangerous of assets. And he's referring to what? Long-term bonds, right? U.S. sovereign bonds. Over the past century, these instruments have destroyed the purchasing power of investors in many countries, even as these holders continue to receive timely payments of interest and principal. So real losses were due. So yeah, that was his inflation inflationary point, right? He was saying, look, inflation's gonna come. Yes, they're safe instruments, but they're not safe from inflation, which is absolutely true if the inflation actually happens. And that's really getting back to, you know, here he is in 2012. So for three years there, he kept saying inflation's coming. The Fed's printing money. Remember, in 2012, we're getting into QE3 and QE4. So even the Fed's printing even more money, all of this stuff. It was absolutely certain. These people were absolutely certain. This reckless spending plus, uh, you know, money printing and central banks, all this crap was going to lead to out of control inflation. And you watch out, you, you bondholders, you're going to get robbed of your your perns, your power, and as well as you know, just regular folks holding dollars, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be holding something that's gonna lose its value tremendously over the next five and ten years, according to the guy, who is probably the most legendary stock investor in history. And in all three so those counts, two things are true. He can be the most legendary stock investor in history, and have absolutely no idea how the dollar and the monetary and the economy actually work. As much as that blows people's minds, that those two things can be true. We did a whole show about this, Jeff. Is Aristotle an idiot? Right? We did a right. whole show. He is not. He's a genius. Warren Buffett, a genius. Great at what he does. Different frame of reference, different paradigm, different world. And that's why you can't make the connection between one or the other. So yeah, rates... The, right, the implications are, well, what, is, what are stocks then? Right? Because the idea is that stocks are a discounting mechanism of these fundamental factors, including inflation, including money, right? That's what we're taught ever since the, you know, your first days of college, yes. even high school economics class, oh, the stock market tells you what's going on in inflation and money and all these things. So how can it be where we had the best stock market investor in history who has no idea about money and inflation, all these other things? Does that say something more specific about what are stocks in reality? Maybe they are not discounting mechanisms after all. Why well, you can't leave us hanging like that, Jeff? What what are they? If they're not discounting mechanisms, are they some sort of? Are they a pageant? Is that what it is? Are they just yeah, parading that's, that's in front of us? To, and that's where we get to John Maynard Keynes' famous assertion of stock market is nothing more than a beauty pageant. And it's not a beauty pageant where you decide who's the most beautiful. It's a beauty pageant where you decide what everybody else thinks is the most beautiful. So if Warren Buffett isn't really beautiful, but we all think it is, or I think everybody else is, and everybody else thinks that I think he is, then we all vote for Warren Buffett to win the beauty contest, even though he may not be the most beautiful. And that's really what we're talking about in terms of inflation and fun economic fundamentals in the stock market. 
Um, it's really basically what everybody seems to believe about stocks. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's true. It just means that we all believe the same thing. Even amongst us, those of us who know it's not true, we still believe everybody else believes it's true. Therefore, we have to act in that way. So the stock market really can be detached from economic fundamentals for a very prolonged period of time. John Maynard Keynes was right about that. And it's, it's another one of those things where, he, you know, just because Keynes, you know, have an emotional reaction to hearing that name and realizing what some of his other theories are, doesn't mean he was wrong about this particular thing. Just as Warren Buffett is right about stocks and wrong about a lot of other things, and John Maynard Keynes was wrong about a lot of other things, but he's right in this respect that what is the stock market really? It has no fundamental attachment other than this beauty it, contest belief. It can detach. There's a graph that you put out every, maybe every quarter or so. Uh, the data goes back to the 1950s in the United States where you compare the United States stock market to the corporate profits. And you can see the bubbles. Since the 1950s, the lines are following each other, but then there are these moments of detachment. We live on Earth. It's populated by humans. It's not a mathematical program in the matrix. Things go off the charts. It's ridiculous. There are no explanations why these things happen that need to be fundamental. Jeff, people will tell us on Twitter, they will say stocks are going up because of QE. Jeff, do I remember correctly that if you look back, at least in the U.S., during those moments when there was quantitative tightening or no QE that the stock market did better? Is, is that correct? Because it's my assertion yeah. the stock market's just going up anyway. And if you look at those moments when the Fed wasn't printing, it did better. Is that right? Do I have that correct? Yeah, and it's, it's really getting, what is quantitative easing? It's the beauty contest. It's the same thing. If everybody believes the Fed is money printing, whether it's money printing or not, everybody will act as if it is. Now that's not true in the real economy because there are real constraints to doing so. You can't just pretend to walk into a, you can't walk into a grocery store and pretend you have money. It doesn't work. <laughs> but you can sort of do something similar in, in the stock market by using savings and portfolios and things like that. So as long as people believe that the Fed is printing money and QE is printing money, they're gonna buy stocks. And let's face it, the financial services industry by and large wants to buy stocks for their clients and they love the fact that quantitative easing gives them a very easy and somewhat understandable, if ultimately incorrect, uh, justification for doing exactly what they want to do. And that's really all QE. It's not money printing. But as Keen says, if everybody thinks it's beautiful and everybody thinks everybody else thinks it's beautiful, guess what? it becomes beautiful. It's not money printing, but it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful myth and lie that we all tell ourselves. And it becomes true because of human behavior and the fact that as Warren Buffett is proving through his own personal journey, that stocks are not a discounting mechanism of fundamentals. They just not, they're not. It's so hard to believe. It's so incredible that I have trouble believing it. I'm thinking, well, QE and stocks are so I'm, I associate the two. It's hard. It's it's hard to believe that they're not related. Beyond that, you know what you the know, funny that, thing that, is, Emil, is if you actually pin down Jay Powell, he would tell you this is exactly what QE is supposed to do. The signal channel portfolio. Not no, not it's this is the signals effect. Mm -hmm. They're signaling to the financial services industry to buy stocks, bidding up share prices, which is supposed to be how consumers and businesses are, are use markets to view for their to get their view of the, what the economy is doing. 
That's you know that's why we're taught that all of these things are all together. And so Jay Powell would say, yeah, QE doesn't work in the real economy. It sure works in the stock market. The problem is that the stock market doesn't actually signal the real economy anymore like we thought it did. And the reason is because of the real monetary constraints, real fundamental constraints that we can't just, you know, the real economy participants can't just ignore. We can't have a beauty contest. I'm supposed to get back to Warren Buffett, but I just have more questions. <laughs> Did one of these Japanese studies that you recently referenced in, uh, in a blog post of yours, did it also say that this portfolio wealth effect doesn't work? Did we ever come across a study by an academic that says this wealth effect is no? Much they all like say that. They do. It's not just the Japanese. There's IMF okay. studies, BIA studies, Federal Reserve studies. There's European studies. They all say the same things. And quantitative easing, to get off track a little bit further, quantitative easing is supposed to work in three different channels. The first channel is lowering interest rates, which we all know that we already talked maybe about there's it. a little tiny bit. The mm -hmm. market lowers interest rates this much, and then QE comes along and maybe does this. I don't think it does that, but whatever. There's statistical models that say maybe it lowers interest rates a little bit. That's the first channel. 50 basis points, about. Yeah, with a 10% of GDP QE, which is enormous. <laughs> so, okay, that's so. A, the second channel is this portfolio rebalancing, which doesn't refer to stock market investors. It refers to the banking system. It means that I buy bonds from you, Mr. Bank. Now you don't have bonds anymore. You have to go, you don't have an earning asset. You have a hole in your balance sheet, so you need to go out and buy some risky assets to make up the profit potential. That never happens either. What ends up happening is the QE, the central bank comes along, buys the bonds from the bank, and then the bank buys the same bonds from the market because it wants those same bonds. It does not want to get rid of them, which are the safe, most liquid bonds. And of course, central bankers never ask, why are they only buying the most safe and liquid bonds? The, that's the second channel. Can Portfolio I just jump balance. in very fast? Yeah. April 2005, Bank of Japan, here's the abstract. The portfolio rebalancing effect has not been found to be significant. Bank exactly. of Japan working paper series. And that was, that was 2005, right? That was pre-crisis. Again, you know, they knew QE didn't work beforehand. And so that leaves the third channel for quantitative easing, which is what we're just talking about. It's the idea that people are supposed to look at a central bank doing something, anything. It doesn't matter what and being happy and optimistic about it. Because let's face it, most people don't know what quantitative easing is. And if they hear it's money printing, they think, well, it's probably money printing. And so it doesn't matter if the central bank, the central bank could be collecting seashells. And if the financial press writes it up as, oh, this is, this is highly accommodative seashell policy, then, well, in theory, in quantitative easing theory, it's, it's expected that consumers will act in a manner consistent with that. They will say, oh, the central bank is collecting seashells. That's highly accommodative. I'm going to start spending more. Businesses are going to start investing and hiring more. So that's the signaling channel. And the and a corollary to the signaling channel is indirect signals, which are like the stock market. The stock market goes up, which reinforces this message that the central bank is doing something positive, even if people have no idea what they're actually doing. And so that has been found to be likewise non-existent because even though the stock market goes up, people are looking at quantitative easing. They're hearing the media stories about highly accommodative and uh, you know money printing, all that stuff. But yet that stories are not enough to go into a real economy and change a real economic situation. That's just just plain reality and plain basic logic and common sense. Here's an IMF working paper, January 2012, about real economic activity and unconventional monetary easing. 
the abstract, the conclusion, the relative contribution of monetary policy measures to the variation in output and inflation is rather small. Damn. Yeah, it's, 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 it's <laughs> and these conclusions are uniform throughout. So here you have, again, getting us back on track, back yes. to Warren Buffett <laughs> and the beauty contest, we have a guy named Warren Buffett who, again, is an absolute legend in the stock market, who is repeating all of these fallacies that have been debunked by the very people who, who engage in the fallacies. The people who are supposed to be printing money tell you, we're not actually printing money. This stuff doesn't actually work. So yet here we have Warren Buffett saying. He, he said that eight, nine years ago, and he said it again, and that's why we're even talking about this yeah. quote. We are seeing substantial inflation. We are raising prices. People are raising prices to us, and it's being accepted. That's true. Okay. Again, that's, that's, a, that's but, a technically true statement. Prices are rising, but that doesn't mean it's inflationary, and it doesn't mean it's systemic and endemic. It just means that prices are rising, and they can be rising for any number of reasons. As we've seen, the goods economy has gone crazy. People are spending Uncle Sam's checks through Amazon and we're buying all sorts of goods and prices are rising. Commodity prices are up, maybe not for monetary reasons or sustainable reasons. However, the services economy still is in the toilet and the prices are not rising in services. And services, by the way, are the much bigger proportion of the of the uh, U.S. and global economy. So, yes, what he's saying is technically true. And he even went further, and I believe he said the economy is red hot, and thus it was in danger of overheating and all these other things. And again, that prices are rising. There are bottlenecks. There are all sorts of things, but that doesn't necessarily add up to currency-destroying inflation. It's, it's not the same thing at all. And if you think that Jay Powell's quantitative easing is contributing to inflation and currency destruction, then at least – you have to say what changed because the, over the last 14 years, we've heard, you know, 13 years, really going back to Bank of Japan 20 years ago, we've heard all the same things and it never turns out to be that way. So if this, if this time is different, you have to explain what is different this time. Jeff, I've uh, completely savaged our time, time goal on this one. I'm going to do it again a little bit more. Forgive me, but I got a tweet from somebody whose name I forgot, who I haven't responded to, like many other tweeters. Again, forgive me. The person said, what about a K-shaped inflation um, paradigm? What if we are seeing a lot more inflation for the people that have suffered the most? I would think that the people that are less well off, a larger proportion of their consumption is with energy and food where we may be seeing price increases and they've been the ones suffering because of the the covid and the shutdowns plus wages have not been keeping up with relative inflation increases you know what i'm saying like the acceleration in wages may be worse than the acceleration in inflation for those areas is it possible that there is very unpleasant inflation but we're seeing it more in the less well-off segment, while broadly, economically, the inflation is nowhere near that would represent you know, economic acceleration and all the good things. Yeah, this K-shaped idea is exactly what happens. It's what happens you know, at, in the aftermath of the so-called so Great Recession. Prices accelerated for a couple of years in energy and food and all of the things, the basic necessities that impact the lowest tiers of the income income levels the most that happens but that's not inflation that's just price increases 
again, and I hate to defend economists and economics here, but they're correct on the, asserting what inflation actually is, is when the, when the prices go up in general, which means not one segment here or there. Those kinds of things happen. In a non-inflationary environment, what happens is that as prices rise in, in food or energy, for example, they have to adjust downward in other places to account for it. It's sort of a redistribution rather than anything else. And yes, this K-shaped idea, that's exactly what happens. It impacts the worst people, the, the people who are already impacted already, it, it, they get hit the, the most because they're redistributed both in terms of it's harder to find a good paying job and oh, yeah. the prices of basic necessities are going up. So they're as far as they're concerned, this is the worst of the worst case. But for the rest of the economy, it's not that way. And really what we're talking about, even in the worst de depression, the amount of people who are suffering is, 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 is a minority of the entire, the entire, whether it's labor force or, or whether it's the economic system. It's always, there's always, even in the worst periods, there are always people who are doing well. In fact, the people who are doing well always outnumber the people who are doing poorly. And what makes a, a depression different from a recession, different from an economic boom, is the proportion of people who are doing poorly. And it, here, we, here we are again in post-COVID recession where that number has grown but yet there are still the vast majority who are unimpacted by COVID and yet they're doing fine. They're doing things that they would normally do and that has created this problem. And the problem is that prices are rising where they hurt the most for people who are not, who are in the wrong side of the, the uh, recession economy. Thank but yes, you very the much. K-shaped thing, absolutely true, but it's still not inflation. It's still, I know it, it's prices rising but they're narrow price rising. They're just, you know, as Warren Buffett said, yes, prices are up, but it doesn't mean it's the currency destroying systemic endemic type that I think the, that's more properly called inflation. This is definitely the most tangents per minute we've had in any episode. We talked about Buffett in the beginning and then we, that, then we left that to the very end. Thank you very much, Jeff. Okay, Emil, take care. <laughs>